0: Ready to haul some asphalt? Join me, Formula One champion Will Arnett and comedian Mika Hakkinen on our new radio program, The Fast and Loose F1 post-show on Amp. Live every Sunday after the Grand Prix, we'll talk with drivers, teams, and everything in between and dissect what happened on the track and off it. Download the Amp app and follow Amp Presents F1 or ask Alexa to play F1 on Amp. absolutely anybody could be like mary be like mary log on to chumbacasino.com and play for free now no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner
2: you're listening to puck and roll here's your host patrick lordy
3: In today's episode, we talk about the rise of the USHL with Cole Caulfield and Sean Farrell leading the way. We take an extended approach to the Montreal Canadiens coaching staff, NHL 22, history, and more. This is episode four of Puck and Roll. Hello, everyone, and thank you very much for tuning in for another episode of Puck and Roll, your weekly roundtable about all things Montreal Canadiens. My name is Patrick Lorty, and we we'll are now be going directly to Elias Lorati with all the news and rumors surrounding the Montreal Canadiens this past week with his segment, The Habs Blitz. This
4: is The Habs Blitz with Elias Lorati. Thank you, Patrick. So uh, it's actually been a pretty, you know, interesting week. We've actually had the announcement uh, with the NHL ads that have been confirmed by all owners that starting in the 2022-2023 season, there will be NHL ads on jerseys. So that's an interesting look. You know, a lot of people, there's been positive and negative feedback. You know, people have seen what's going on with Europe and uh, they're scared that, you know, it'll become like the NHL become like Europe where you'll just see... You know, loads of ads on jerseys and uh, no news yet on Jesper Kotkanemi or Eric Stahl. Um, I can't confirm Kotkanemi was back in uh, in Canada. He was actually on an Instagram post with Victor Mete, who you know is also his good friend. There was another funny rumor. Last week we were talking about Alex Galchenyuk, Uh And this week, actually, someone actually thought that maybe Max Domi was going to come back. My personal two cents, I don't see that happening, you know. After the downward spiral that you even had the last couple of years as well, and, you know, as we mentioned also with Galchenik last week, I don't think Domi, you know, would have a spot on this lineup, to be honest. And uh, basically that's what I've heard. Also, there was, there was um, news today that sort of affects Quebec. Arizona, the city of Glendale, decided not to renew their lease with the Arizona Coyotes sparking debate now on Twitter most recently, as this evening, saying that Quebec City could be a potential uh, – Relocation for the uh, Coyotes, who will have to vacate the arena as of uh June 30th, 2022, and uh, that's the news and rumors for this week.
3: Thank you, Elias, and I think I can uh, speak for everyone that uh Max Dubin to Montreal is not happening. Forget it; we don't want him. You've done; he <laughs> done what you had to do. Now stay out. We like Josh Anderson. <laughs> we love our power <laughs> horse.
4: Definitely, for sure, I definitely agree. Anderson, I, I would even say he's an upgrade on Max Domi. You know, he's bigger size. He's faster. Oh, yeah. Know.
3: It's not the same character at all. Either. No, not at
4: all, not at all.
3: Thank you very much, Elias. Uh, I also would like to take the opportunity to congratulate Elias on the undertaking of a new project. Uh, everyone listening, you can uh, uh, follow Elias on CJLO 1690 AM in the Montreal region. That's the Concordia University radio, where Elias will be joining Chanel Marie with the news reports on the top of the hour. On the topic of Chanelie, actually, the crew here at Puck and Roll would like to thank you for, lending her, uh, for, uh, for her lending her voice to us. Excuse me. The voice you hear at the beginning of our segments, as a matter of fact, is the one of Chanel and Marie. On behalf of all of us, well, thank you very much and shout out to everyone at CJLO. Also, in uh, other quick community uh, news, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to extend my congratulations to our own Scott Cowan. Uh, he's also expanded his media portfolio, so to speak. And as of this season, uh, Scott can be heard over at the Third Line Plug, which is an Ottawa Senators podcast, uh, where he'll be occasionally presenting one show Canadian segments. So, on behalf of all of us, congratulations, Mr. Scott. Now, let's talk Habs. much Canadians surprised no one in the off season by removing the interim tag off off of Dominique duchamp in order to become for him to become their permanent and official head coach what surprised many however is the lukewarm reception in the news by many fans and media outlets alike some question whether or not duchamp is actually the man for the job pointing out certain highlights of the past season, such as his sub-500 record of 15-16-7 in the regular season, compared to Claude Julien's 9.54 4 record for 6.11 6-11 win percentage. Many have also speculated that the rise of Corey Perry and Eric Stahl in the locker room after Game 4 against the Toronto Maple Leafs in the first round of last year's playoffs was not just a message being sent to the players to wake up, but to the coaching staff as well. Others might push the envelope even further and claim that Luke Richardson had his team handled even better than Duchamp would when the head coach was sent home and missed games after he was tested positive for COVID-19. So on the panel today to discuss this whole debacle about Dominique Duchamp is Sebastian High and Joshua Rosa. Welcome, guys. Sebastian, first of all, let me welcome you back to the show. Uh, this Thanks. Week. No problem. And I'm going to pass the puck to you first, my friend. What are your honest feelings about Dominic Duchamp having his interreg tag uh, removed and being named, uh, from my calculation, the 25th head coach in Montreal Canadiens history?
1: The way I see it, it was impossible not to do it, right? Like You you, you cannot go to a Stanley Cup final for the first time in, what, 28 years and then remove the interim uh, tag from the head coach. And, and, and like not 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 bring the inter head coach back as a full time head coach because, like <laughs> he he was the leader that brought Montreal to where they ended up, which was the Stanley Cup final. And um, like it is true that his regular season record was worse than Claude Julien's, but at the same time, it's important to realize that a coach brings his own unique system, and you cannot actually impose your own unique system on the, like into the locker room and on the ice without like an extended preseason and like an entire offseason to really figure out how you're going to do it. Like you cannot come in middle of the season and uh, immediately just bring your own system and adapt like that because players need to get used to it too. Right. So, so the system that we saw Duchamp De- play, play was like a modified version of Claude Julien's that brought in some of his own views, but he couldn't do what he fully wanted to. So we might see a very different looking team this season that is Closer to what Duchamp envisioned uh, when he took the helm than when we saw last season. So, I I really don't see how the team could not have brought him back.
3: I absolutely agree because I I don't, I don't think it's happened very often in the history not just of hockey, but of sports in general, where a coach is fired midway through the season and an interim comes in and wins the whole thing. The the only person that comes to mind off the top of my head is Dan Bilesma in Pittsburgh, uh, when ironically, Michel Terrien was the head coach and he got fired. And then the the Penguins ended up winning the cup that year.
1: St. Louis too. Oh,
3: yes, it's true. The Craig, uh, with Craig Berube, it's true. Yeah. Uh, Josh, what's your, what's, uh, your take on it? I mean, do you think that you know on paper the statistics just show that Julien did a better job but then again statistics on paper show that Michel Terrien has a better win percentage than everyone except Scotty Bowman, Toe Blake and Cecil Hart I mean, I don't think we can put you know Michel Therrien in the same boat as Scotty Bowman to begin with. But I mean, what's your what's your take on it? I mean, was it the right move to remove the intern tag? And what do you think his impact is going to be as of this season with
2: Dominic Ducharme? I can see where certain people are coming with being not super happy about his uh, about his. <laughs> re-upping his taking off of the interim tag because he was 15-16-9 in the regular season. And in the postseason, if we look at them as just hockey games, they played 22 games, won 13 of them. 13-8-1 was their final record. They did get their – they got the wins they needed. And I think the big thing was that Dominic Ducharme in my opinion, won the Toronto series for Montreal. He changed up their defensive scheme to be a lot more aggressive and standing up on the blue line to stop the Toronto forwards from having that much time and space in the neutral zone and really shut down that Toronto defense offense that was running all over them in the first couple of games.
3: Absolutely. But like the, I think the one thing to take into consideration with that as well is that although Uh, after that fourth game, that's where we saw him playing like those really heavy minutes on his top four defensemen. Like I mentioned earlier, and this is what some of the pundits are complaining about, if you want to call it a complaint or whatever, Corey Perry and Eric Stahl stood up in the locker room. Now, that story has been confirmed by pretty much everyone. It has happened. Now, we don't know exactly what's been said, but a lot of people are saying that they not only – you know, address the team and being like, guys, we need to wake up, like we can do we're we're better than them, we could beat them, yada, yada, yada. But also the message was being sent directly to the coaching staff as well being like, guys, you guys need to adapt as well. Now, would Dominic Duchamp and his team, of course, would the adjustment have been made if those leaders hadn't stood up? Now, that's my question. What do you think?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting idea because while the ideas probably didn't come from Corey Perry and Eric Stahl to change the way that the game was defensively played, I'm just assuming I don't think they went I up d- to the I coaching they were staff coaching, and said, yeah. hey, you should play <laughs> Shea Weber 28 times, 28 minutes a night and play him right up at the blue line.
3: No, I think only Jack Eichel was allowed to do that. Am I correct?
2: in <laughs> the way that you look at with players um it's a learning experience like he hasn't coached an NHL team before as far as i know i'm sure he hasn't and uh he i'm certain that he took stuff from that and he learned like when to make adjustments how exactly to make them how to trust your elder leaders on the team and i think he's going to be just a better coach for that
3: Sebastian, I'm going to use your little um, Prospect Heroes knowledge and ask you the question directly. If, have you have you actually followed Dominic Dusharm's um, minor league career?
1: Yeah, a, a little bit. Like again, I is a little bit before my time because um, I mean, at least the, the beginning part of that, but. He was the coach for the Halifax Mooseheads, and uh, they won the Memorial Cup. So he was the coach w- when uh, they had that dominant team with uh, Jonathan uh Nathan McKinnon, and Zachary Foucault. Um, and, yeah, so, so he was he was extremely strong there. Uh, then he went over to bainville bois and uh, then also really reinvigorated that, that team, right? So he worked with players like uh, Joel Teasdale. And um, like, you, you can look at like his record uh, in junior hockey and it's, it, it is in- incredibly impressive. Um, like every season that he that's with a team, um, like the next season has a better record, right? He, he never took a step down in any way uh, with the same team, right? So like when he moved over to Blaineville, uh, <laughs> like the first season was a bit rough. But the next season was good. The year after, it was great, right? There's always this improvement. And he's never been fired from a single coaching position, which is insane to me, right? Like how, like to be an NHL coach and through your entire coaching career to have never been fired yet is really telling as to how high of a quality of a coach you are. So I, I am totally in the boat of giving him at least a full year now to just put in his own system, give him time with the players and just see where it takes them
3: yeah absolutely and I and Josh, um I think at the same time, don't you think this uh, this is all this also signifies kind of a change of culture in the national Hockey League in terms of recycling the old coaches like we've done for so many years I mean, gone are the guard of all of like the mag Babcocks and the you know Jacques Martin and even michel Thierry we were mentioning earlier, Bob Hartley, I mean those guys are just long gone and everything, and now in comes. Dominic Ducharme, Andre Tourigny in uh, in Arizona, even Jeremy Colton in Chicago, for that matter, you know, who is still like, Christ, he's younger than I am. <laughs> and, and so do you think this is because the game of hockey has changed, you know, not only culturally, but on the ice, off the ice, and it's just, hey, it's, this, this, this is just a natural shift in, in generations, or is there more to it? What, what's your take on that?
2: Yeah, there's not really much old guard left. The one that I can really think of left is Joel Quentinville in uh, Florida is kind of the last of that generation of coaches that is still coaching today. And I think you see it with uh, what happened with Mike Babcock in Toronto recently. And John Tortorella is another guy who kind of has that old school fire in your belly Rah, raw coaching style in your face that it seems like a lot of old coaches have, but a lot of new coaches are aiming to seem to be aiming towards the more nicer, um, supportive coaching role than trying to light fires under those guys. I, that's just my what I'm seeing now. And one new coach that might be interesting to look at that I was thinking about which is a result of this move. It could be Joel Bouchard. Because a lot of people saw him leaving because Dominic Ducharme got the extension that he wasn't going to get the head coach job that he might go over to Anaheim and where he might be able to get a head coach job sooner there. So I don't know. Sebastian probably knows more about the impact that would have on the AHL team. I think he took the whole coaching staff with him there, and that would be
1: interesting to look at. Yeah, it's it's a huge turnover in Laval. It's going to be a really interesting season for Laval, but at the same time, I wouldn't really worry because of just how strong their lineup is, right? Like, coaching definitely plays a role in results, but if you have, like, if you look at, at the Laval Rocket last season, like, you have you have to consider that they were playing in just the Canadian division in the AHL with a lot of teams that were just fairly weak for the AHL. Like, uh, the Marlies weren't great. The Belleville Senators weren't great, right? Like, it's also just stacking up big results against weaker teams. So if they've been playing against all AHL teams, the record would not have been nearly as good as it was. However, <laughs> it's a really strong lineup, right? Like, uh, Ryan Paling might be back. If he is, that's, like, a phenomenal AHL first-line center. Uh, and they just they, they just bolstered their lineup, right? Like, like they signed... So many established NHL players on, on AHL deals. I, despite, despite the coaching turnover, I'm not worried about Laval. It's going to be a bit of a change from the Joel Bouchard uh, era. And I really did like Bouchard's coaching style. It was fun to watch. Uh, but look, I'm, we have to give uh, Ul a shot. And with this lineup, it's going to be monumentally difficult to drop the ball.
3: Yeah, Scott actually joined us earlier and we uh, we recorded a segment that you guys are going to be hearing in a little bit. And we talked exactly about that, about the impact that Jean-François Oli is going to have in Laval, the change of culture, but at the same time, the stacked lineup that the, the American Hockey League team is ha- is, is going to have. Uh, Sebastian, what do you also... Um, let me just take your take as well on the... Well, first of all, we also re-signed Alexander Burroughs, which I think is is, is an only a positive impact that we... I think we've covered quite a bit uh, last week. You know, there was also the uh, Luke Richardson is sticking on board. The one uh, thing that we we haven't covered, and we think that it's just it's something that's no pretty you know basic and everything. But if you remember during the course of last season, the Canadians nominated Sean Burke, director of goaltending. Now this. Essentially means that Sean Burke ha- gets to create his own team in order to manage goaltending. I'm not entirely sure if there was an impact last year. I don't necessarily think so because it was brand new, and there was also the the whole COVID uh, issue as well because Sean Burke was in the United States and he had to you know go through uh, quarantine and whatnot. But I mean, going further, do you think this will have an an absolute impact? I'm, let's focus on the Jake Allen and Kerry Price tandem. And and what I mean by impact is not necessarily being better performance-wise, but it would also mean working smarter as well.
1: Yeah, like um, Sean Burke is not going to be a hands-on um, person in the organization, because basically the way that like the it, it, the the organizational hierarchy is looking now at the, for goaltending is that uh, you have uh, I, I'm forgetting I'm forgetting the names now. I feel really really bad, but um, there's like a a goalie scout who uh, basically takes care of all like the drafted goalies that aren't uh, playing with Laval or Montreal. So you look at like Jakub Dobesh you look at uh, Frederic M- Mison Deschau, you look at is there anyone else? Uh, anyways, look at the, the drafted go- goalie prospects that aren't with the Habs right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then the, so there's one guy that takes care of them. Then you have the AHL goalie coach that takes care of all the goalies that are in the AHL. Uh, Marciano, yeah. Thank you, Marciano. <laughs> and then you have Eric Thaymond, who is going to be the Habs goalie coach, who will be working with Carey Price and Jake Allen. So... It's going to be a real difference because we haven't seen this kind of role in Montreal before of having a director of goaltending who no, is I... hands off in that way. So it's going to be interesting to see, and even to look at like what what his role even entails. Like like I don't I'm not quite sure what he's actually going to do, considering like all these coaches are going to do the hands on stuff. But like what are the hands off stuff of like? goalie administration I have well, no idea. I'm,
3: not, I'm not entirely sure myself and to be fair i think the canadians are only the second team in the nhl after the florida panthers to institute this kind of, of coaching in the first place uh so i guess it remains to be seen but it's definitely an interesting approach and i'm really curious to see if that's actually going to have a positive impact on our goaltending because lord knows in a, in, in a 82 82 game schedule that we haven't seen in two years and 82 games condensed as well, because it's the Olympics next year, you know, like, like we're going to need those two, those, those two guys more than healthy and performing Sebastian and Josh for the final 60 seconds of this segment. I just wanted to uh, mention this uh, real quickly. Um, I don't know if you guys have been on Twitter or, or anything today. Um, have you noticed uh, Austin Matthews getting his uh, 30 seconds of fame and being named <laughs> once again for the second oh. time in three years as the cover athlete for Dang. NHL 22? Is uh, come on, guys, this is ridiculous. I I'm hate sorry. this. I hate this. I, I, I totally again, hate this. Also,
1: like Matthews is my least favorite player in the NHL. Like he's, <laughs> he's great to watch on, on the ice, but like I, I, I mean, a- after his after his like Austin incident, like how can you have this guy on the cover? Not even just once, but like twice in three years. Oh, they kidding?
3: claimed the EA like, claimed that he's the future, he, he's and now the game guy, is going into the next character? generation.
1: Exactly. I, I don't
3: know. Like, I, personally, I would have went
1: with someone like Nathan McKinnon or something. But then again, or, or like, there's so many options. Like you can go with Artemi Panarin. You can go with David Pasternak. You can go with Carey Price. There's EA, so many Like, you have EA, so many
3: options. EA has this wonderful habit of. Picking the wrong players. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, oh, like, yeah, I, I get that there, it was, like you know, a mini dynasty and everything, but they had Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves back to back. So it was two Chicago yeah. player. The year that PK Suban was dominated was the year he got traded to Nashville. So we had that awkward yeah. moment where we're picking up our copy, and we have like, oh, he's Nashville. Uh, but Josh, I don't know if you're a gamer at all and you want to comment on this, but I mean, I just need to mention this that it's still pretty hilarious that Austin Matthews will have done the cover of NHL more often than he has played in the second round of the playoffs.
2: I'm just glad he has something to celebrate this year after that (laughs) performance (laughs) of the first round.
3: (laughs) Well, we will see. I mean, uh, I've been playing this game since forever, and I don't know. We all know what the comments are. So like we say, en en bon québécois, on verra. And now it's my pleasure to send the puck back to Joshua Rosa. Josh is going to be pre- presenting us a new weekly segment called On This Day in Habs History. On This Day in Habs History.
2: On This Day, August 19th, year of Our Lord, 1988, Canadian's legend, Gila Fleur the new york rangers at age 37 he scored 18 goals and 45 points that season good enough to earn him two more with the nordiques before retiring for good he became just the second player to play in the nhl after being inducted into the hall of fame first being gordy howe and the third being mario lemieux in 2000 on the exact same day august 19th 1947 the Canadians traded away Buddy O'Connor and Frank Edels to the Rangers for Joe Bell, George Robertson, and Hal LaCole. The big name in this is Buddy O'Connor. He scored 60 points in 60 games the year the Montreal Canadiens traded him away. He won the Hart Trophy and the Lady Bing Trophy that year. He went on to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1988 it was the exact same day and year as you guessed it gila fleur
3: outstanding josh thank you so much for that and now it is time for everyone's favorite segment sebastian high and scott cowan the prospect heroes the prospect heroes scott and sebastian on puck and roll Scott wasn't able to join us for the recording of uh, this episode, but I have sat down with him nonetheless before our show. We recorded a little segment and here's his take on how the Laval Rocket roster is shaping up. All right, so Scott, last week we were talking about who can potentially crack the uh, NHL roster. Um, there was um, obviously a lot of like, great discussion about guys like Brian Paling, who seems to be a favorite to, to make the Canadian squad. Um, other guys like Alex Belzil was mentioned, et cetera. But now let's let's maybe take a little focus on the AHL roster as a whole. Let's look at the Rockets. And I mean, there's a million and one new players <laughs> to begin with. I think 90% of the, the roster is going to be speaking French in the locker room. But how about we just take a good lo- long look at it and see... In your opinion, are there any players that stand out more than others this season for the Rocket?
5: Well, I think one of the really nice things about the Law Rocket this past season is that they've finally gotten to a respectable standard and they finally become a very competitive team in the AHL. Over their first two seasons, or should I say three seasons, they really struggled and they were kind of in in the middle of the pack or dead last in the AHL for those first three seasons. So now there's definitely a lot more eyes on them as they've kind of got that Canadian division title. They have a really talented young roster coming up. And also, they signed 14 players to AHL contracts this past offseason, which is a crazy, crazy amount, and one that will definitely contribute to the roster really well. Now, in regard to the guys that I think will stand out, as you said, I think Ryan Palin will continue to be the offensive leader for the Rocket. I mean, he's a former first-round pick, but the Canadian's 25th overall. And he's sadly just kind of been stuck in the middle of the pack due to Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki coming through the ranks, and he's kind of been brushed to the wayside for the time being. And while I think that paling isn't nearly as talented as Caulfield or Suzuki by a long shot, I still think he's a really talented player in his own right, and I feel like he's deserving of a chance to prove himself. He he definitely did this past season in Laval of 25 points in 28 games after struggling in 2019-20 and being in uh, head coach Joel Bouchard's uh, doghouse for part of the season. And he definitely fits the bill as a kind of Michael McCarron player in Montreal, a guy who isn't really that talented offensively, but is a great defensive player. Leading on from that, the or going into the fact of guys who aren't quite don't who don't didn't have quite as uh, high of a draft billing. Joel Tezel and Rafael Harvey Pinar were obviously two of the biggest surprises for the rocket last season and became really really great offensive leaders for the team in spite of being undrafted players in spite of having not really much going for them and in spite of their injury troubles. They still managed to step up and really prove themselves as talented players worth a look. Joel Tezel obviously caught a lot of people's eyes in his final season with the Ruin Norada Huskies where he put up uh, 34 points in 20 games in a Memorial Cup title run and this past season LaValle he had 18 points in 26 games spite of a broken leg in last season's training camp, uh, uh, causing him to miss the entire 2019-20 season. While, he's, while he managed to miss the end of this season as well due to injuries, he should be ready for training camp, and he's an incredibly talented player and a very valuable asset to the Rockets.
3: How about we take a second and talk about Rafael Arve Pinal just for one second. Um, I mean, he's definitely developed into one of those feel good stories, I would say, Um, you know, so again, like you mentioned, you know, like he's a, he was actually, he was a seventh round pick in 2019 for the Canadians. Um, And, you know, he's your diminutive winger. He's five foot nine, 173 pounds soaking wet. He's a tiny guy, but you know, he seems to come not only, well, I mean, statistics are statistics i mean last season um nine goals 11 assists 20 points in 36 games you know and the last year was you know all over the place of course but you know he still held his own in the queue but again the quebec junior major hockey league is renowned to for having you know like outstandingly lavish offensive numbers but if you look a little bit i mean what stood out from me is um is not only the fact that he's a hard worker, but it seems that the work ethic that he's developed is just in his DNA. Uh, a, a perfect example is if you take his sister who has been hired by La Price uh, to be a sports reporter as well, you know, and she said the same thing. It's like, wow, I'm, giving, I'm, giving, I'm being given the chance to, you know, make a difference in, in you know, the sports world, the community, et cetera. So how do you think that work ethic will transpire onto the ice and I know last week we were talking about how, you know, he actually can be a dark horse in order to make the NHL one day. But I mean, at the moment, is he going to be one of those guys that, that's going to be relied upon for, you know, kind of like getting the troops motivated and having like maybe the like semi Brendan Gallagher type role for the Rocket.
5: I think I'm gonna well, I'm gonna make a statement that's kind of maybe a bit more on the obscure side here but in many ways Raphael Harvey Bernard is the Alexandre Alain that, that never was for the Rocket Alexandre Alain was one, of, was one of my favorite players over his first two seasons in Laval but he unfortunately or well to his own uh choices chose to continue his studies and leave professional hockey rather than continue to play for the Rocket which was a shame he was playing really well in 2019 20 and he was actually one of their offensive leaders towards the end of the season and he definitely brought that work ethic in the same kind of hard-driving nature that Harvey Bernard brings to the Rocket and and I definitely think that Pinard is that hometown kid that everyone can root for, that Laval's been looking for, and he definitely came out of the grapevine in terms of being kind of a player who came out of left field, definitely very un- unknown at the time coming out of the King jhl but yeah, I definitely think that he is that kind of Brendan Gallagher type for the Rocket, and he's somebody that everyone can kind of build around and root for, especially the younger players. In my own mind, I think Alex Belzil is definitely more of that Brendan Gallagher type for the Rocket, as he's our heart and soul in many ways. But for a lot of the prospects who are coming into Laval this season, having come out of the q I think Bernard is a guy they can look up to and be like, huh, if this guy can do this in Laval, maybe I can too.
3: Yeah, absolutely, but at the same time, maybe if we're, we're going to rewind a little bit, you mentioned uh, last season, you know, being a successful one, and under the the reigns of Joel Bouchard, who is no longer here, and we did a quick a quick notes, uh, I think, in the second episode uh, with the hiring of Jean Francois Ol, Martin Laparia, Kelly Buckberger, Marco, and you know Marco Marson keep, keeping his uh, goaltending uh, um, coaching duties. It's hard to. It's hard to predict anything when you have new coaches coming in, especially those that haven't had that much experience in that particular league. But in accordance to what you're seeing on your end, I mean, are we going to see that much of a difference between Joel Bouchard and Jean-Francois Hull, or is it a completely different other style? I mean, I'm sure you've made a ton of research on this as
5: well from your end. So, I mean, what what have you dug up on Hull? Jean-François, Jean-François Ul is a very experienced coach at a lot of different levels. He was an assistant of Clarkson University in the ECAC for, for a number of years. He was a head coach in the QGHL for a number of different teams. He was a head coach in the ECHL for one season. And for the past, well since 2015-16, he's been an assistant coach in the AHL of the Bakerfield Condors. So he does have experience as a coach. But Joe Bouchard was a very different is a very different story, and in many ways, he was a player that div- he was a coach that divided a lot of players on the While Well, mm, I yeah. personally loved his coaching style. Definitely, he wasn't for everybody, and there's some players who have come on and said I flat out just didn't like his coaching style at all. Guys like Dale Weiss publicly came on and stated how much they had the, of their disdain for Bouchard. But then again, that ties into how Bouchard is as a coach. He rewards guys who re- he rewards guys who work hard and just come and bring the same thing to the ice every single night. And Dale Weiss, being a player who is playing off a of two million deal and obviously didn't want to play in the NHL probably didn't work that hard, which probably could explain why Bouchard didn't like him and why Bouchard didn't give him enough ice time. Now, Hull, I definitely I definitely think will be more of a player's coach as compared to what Bouchard was, and I definitely think he'll be more, how to say, understanding and kind of have a more down earth aspect as compared to Bouchard, kind of like how Larry Robinson was with the New Jersey Devils, but then again, I think Kelly Buckberger will make up for that, as Buckberger is known as being one of the toughest players in the NHL during his playing career, and he definitely carries oh, all yeah. the same values mm-hmm. as a head coach, so... Yeah, I definitely think that Laval, I'm excited to see what Laval's new coaching staff brings. And I hope that they can build on what Joe Bouchard did. than is completely gutting everything he built that team up to be and just kind of build starting from scratch. I definitely think there's a, a groundwork that Bouchard has laid that I definitely think who can capitalize on and really take the rock to new heights.
3: We also, uh, maybe, should take a quick mention of with the, the goaltending situation in Laval. I mean, it's pretty obvious, on paper at least, that uh, Caden Primo is going to be leading the team and probably getting the bulk of the starts and everything. But again, you know, you got Michael McNiven who had that, I guess we'll call it a contract dispute. I don't know how to tell you how we'll qualify it. But um, I mean, wh- what, what, what does it look like on the goaltending front for the rocket i mean is it just going to be the the Caden primo show or is it going to or or should we expect maybe a higher rotation
5: i think how's jim mark bergevin has done a really good job of promoting competition in the rocket net and he's and he's done that with just by adding one player in kevin pooling Poulet is a player that most people have probably brushed off to the side as kind of a random signing like i was just there to fill the roster but Poulain brings a lot to the table, and he's had a really, really long and very depth-filled pro career. He's played for a number of different teams. He's been all over the map, and he definitely has that experience that the Rockets are looking for in their goal. And keep in mind, he also has the most NHL experience out of any goal to run the Rockets' crease. He played 50 games, and he was also a brief backup for the New York Islanders in 2013-14. While he's bounced around a ton over these past few seasons, going from the KHL to the Swiss A-League, the AHL, to even the LNAH for a brief period, I definitely think he'll be coming to Laval hungry and looking to prove himself in, at the AHL level, kind of like how it has been the case with a number of AHL players over the last little while. Some people might remember Rob Schrem's brief tenure with the Portland Pirates in 2015-16. And yeah, he had one really good season with the Portland Pirates, and he kind of proved himself at the AHL level, and I definitely think that's what is going to be looking to do too. Now, keep in mind, Michael McNiven went to arbitration with the Canadians, so it's obvious that he wants to get more playing time in Laval, and he wants to see an increased role there. And I definitely think he'll be given a chance to do that. Still, a different thing that bringing Poulet in will promote some healthy competition, which I think is just the thing that McNiven needs to really bring his game up to the next level.
3: I totally agree with the case of Kevin Poulet. I mean, the, the fact that he's bounced around, like you said, he's been in the Swedish League, the American League, the German League. He even went playing Austria, yeah, and then the KHL for that matter. I think as a 31-year-old, I'm pretty sure that Mark Berger like, probably, like, he uh, saw right through it, and he said, you know what, in the event that's Jake Allen or Carey Price is injured. You know we're going to need to call somebody up. Maybe having a guy like Poulin, if he can really um, throw himself in there, prove that he can make an impact on the AHL level. Maybe he'll be the first one called up instead of Caden Primo, because we've seen shades of brilliance from Primo uh, in his brief NHL uh, stint. But he, it, it, it's obvious that he's not ready
5: for big time hockey. Am I right? Mm. I mean, I definitely think that Poulet, Oh, sorry, not Poulin. I definitely think that Kaden Primo had a bit of a struggle last season with the Canadians, and he definitely resembled uh, Andre Rasko or Red Light Rasko in a lot of ways of his penchant for letting in some soft goals. It definitely reminds me of of how Anthony Naomi was in his final season in Montreal, where somebody would fire a shot from outside the blue line and he'd barely make the save and he'd almost let that puck in. Yeah, exactly. And that's just something that comes with experience. And I definitely think Kaden Primo has a lot of potential, but it's just something that he hasn't yet fully realized because he just needs more workload he just needs more time to develop remember he was a seventh round pick even though he did win the mike richter award as the ncaa's top goaltender he was a seventh round pick for a reason and i definitely think he'll need some more time in laval and in my own opinion, I definitely think he should be given the keys to Laval's crease for the time being and be given a chance to really prove himself as a minute muncher in the AHL. For a brief time, everyone thought that Charlie Lindgren would be that big minute muncher, but as we come to find out, that didn't work out as Lingren is now with the St. Louis Blues. But I definitely think that Primo is poised to have that's the same kind of season that Lingren had in his first season with the St. John's Ice Cups, where he led them to the AHL playoffs and almost led them to a to a first-round upset over the first-place uh, Syracuse Crunch in the, in the qualifying rounds. So yeah, I definitely think that Primo has a lot. Lot of potential and while he's not quite NHL ready just yet the Canadians have Carey Price and Jake Allen back there so I think they'll be fine Laval.
3: So how about we just you know we we have covered everything but the but the defensemen so how about we just talk about the blue line real quickly? Um I think it's gonna be pretty obvious that uh Caden Gooley should see a lot, a lot a lot of minutes in Laval. Um you know especially with a very high ceiling that he has. I wouldn't pass them to maybe we're gonna see a little bit more of guys like Josh Brooke for example who's you know he's been knocking at that at that ceiling, and uh, maybe trying to break that glass ceiling once and for all, and, may, and actually maybe maybe make it to the NHL someday. Uh, but what do you think? I mean, like aside aside from Gouli, who you know obviously is is probably going to be in, in in the top two defensemen, is there anyone else who, who seems to stand out on the blue line?
5: Well, the Rock Rocket definitely had a penchant for having like the Canadians a very solid defensive core that's not really stands out in many ways, but they're just guys who are very dependable and very reliable. Gustav Olsson has obviously always been a reliable player for the Canadians. I'm not quite sure if he is still on the roster today, but should he be, I would I definitely expect him to continue to be serve as a sort of talented option. Same so thing goes for Toby Bisson, who was a, a very talented defensive option for the Rocket last season and is like Raphael Harvey-Bernard and Joel Teasdale. He was more of a sort of lower rated option, but he's definitely proved himself with a plus 13 rating over 28 games this past season. The main thing that the Rockets are going to have to watch out for is the departure of Otto Luskinen. Most people didn't really... Respect, or no, no respect, but Leskin was definitely kind of thrown to the wayside by most no, he was a, of the He season. was definitely a little underappreciated, right? It, for sure, definitely. Yeah. And I don't think it was really something that he was deserving of. He played really well when the Kings gave him a chance, and he was also an AHL also this past season, but he's chose to take his services elsewhere, and he's going to join a very, very talented Joker Helsinki team in the KHL. And in my own mind, I hope that Leskin can become the 20-goal guy he never was here in Laval and the KHL and maybe see an NHL contract on the line. Now, with that in mind, I definitely think that Kaden Gouli will be able to hopefully replace what uh, Let's get brought to the lineup. And even going to lead on from that, I hope that Xavier Ouellette can rediscover his offensive touch, which really disappeared last season in Laval as he kind of bounced between the Canadiens roster on and off, on and off. So I definitely think that the Rock can have a lot to look forward to in terms of their defense, not to mention some of the guys that they have coming in off their AHL contracts, like Chris Neal, who is a, who is a Concordia University defenseman, who signed mm-hmm. to an AHL deal and was an incredibly talented off- offensive defenseman at Concordia, being a point-per-game player in every season there. So I definitely think the Rocket have a lot to look forward to on defense. It's just going to be a question of who's going to fit in where and who's going to be able to be a solid, reliable player night in and night out.
3: Final 60 seconds, Scott. So your predictions, where are they going to land in the standings? And, well, are they going to go far in the playoffs? Your prediction for next season?
5: Main division title again. I'm gonna be a very bold claim right there, and oh, the yeah. like Rocket have, it 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 <laughs> have what it takes to get that Canadian Division title once more, even if the departure of a lot of their offensive players. I'm really looking forward to the future of AHL hockey in Montreal, and the Rocket are finally where the Canadians want them to be—a talented, competitive AHL team. Yeah, I, uh, it brings me back to the days of Duncan Milroy and Corey Locke and the Baines and, <laughs> and Maxim Lapierre and the old Hamilton Bulldogs. I'm definitely looking forward to not only going to see Rocket games in person once more, but seeing just what they can bring to the table night in and night out out so in my own opinion i think is the limit for the law rocket at this moment
3: hey scott i really appreciate the time you're taking in order to review the rocket how about we do this again next week we'll uh, we'll cover the trois rivières lyon next time what do you think sounds good patrick sounds good. all right thanks a so bunch <laughs> all right then once again thank you very much scott now sebastian i know you've been waiting a while for this i mean we've we've talked about wanting to talk about this young man for a couple of episodes now I would say it is now finally time to speak a little bit more in details about Sean Farrell and I think at the same time it's um it's important to notice that the USHL program is going through an outstanding growth I mean if you look at just the Canadians alone you know, we're we're looking at, of course, the Sean you know Sean Farrell having that ridiculous season that he's had last uh, this past season. You know, the rise of Cole Caulfield, and also like let's not forget that you know we Caden Primo, Jacob Dobbs, uh, Luke Tuck, also uh, hails uh, from uh, this program. Um, first of all, let's talk about Sean Farrell, Sebastian. Like you are the the big expert when it comes to the the younger uh, prospects. So uh, go ahead. What's your take on on uh, Sean Farrell?
1: I've really been looking forward to talking about him. Um, he is one of my favorite prospects uh, in the Habs system. In the 2020 draft, uh, which was the first draft I was really covering in depth, uh, he was my 32nd or 33rd ranked prospect overall. So I had him on the fringes of the first round, and Montreal got him with the final selection of the fourth round. So um, it's probably it's the only draft pick apart from Cole Caulfield, where I audibly cheered. Uh, I was really excited when they got him because he is, um, I've been saying this a lot about Habs prospects, but he's a lot of fun to watch. He's, he's, he's great. Uh, so in his draft year, he was playing on a powerhouse Chicago Steel team with uh, Brendan Brisson and uh, Sam Colangello. Uh, both of whom went in like the top 40 picks of the 2020 draft. And yet Sean Farrell fell to the end of the fourth round. He is a player that had quite a few flaws in his draft year. um, But the one thing he always had was being a borderline elite playmaker. Um, And I don't really have any issues saying that. Uh, The only question I had is if it's borderline or actually elite. His playmaking ability is phenomenal. He can thread the needle Uh, when I was watching him going into his draft year. There are passes that he completed tape to tape that I didn't even see were available. Uh, He is just so skilled. But the the, the issues in his draft year were the fact that his wrist shot was kind of fluky. Uh, He had like flashes of a really good one-timer, which he used a lot last season, which was wonderful. Uh, But his wrist shot was hit or miss. And his skating was an issue, but there was already the foundation of a tenacious and uh, like great playmaker uh, right there. And then this season, he was meant to actually go to Harvard, and he probably would have been playing in a depth role had he gone. But instead, uh, because um, Ivy League didn't play this season... He went back to, to the Chicago Steel and uh, was part of an even more superstar team. Basically, they were dominant. Uh, he was playing on the same in the same forward core as 14th overall selection, Mackie Coronado, and as well as um, Mackie Samoskevich, who was a Florida Panthers first-round draft pick this season. And despite that, the, the, him playing with two first-round picks this season There was never a doubt that he was the best player in the USHL this year. He was phenomenal. He put up uh, 101 points in 53 games. It's only the second time in USHL history that a player put up over 100 points. Uh, And he also almost doubled his gold tally from the previous season, which went from 15 to 29. And it's because he started, he really put in a lot of work for his shot. Like, his shot was so much improved. His one-timer is now a legitimate weapon, which is really helping his power play performance. Like, I would, like, think of, like, Jonathan Drouin. like, on the power play, he is only a passing threat, right? And it makes him predictable, which makes him less of a threat on the power play. But because Sean Farrell added the uh, scoring dimension to his game, he is now a, a true dual threat on the power play, especially because the one-timer is devastating. Uh, in his draft year, it was Brendan Brisson who was taking all the one-timers. Uh, but this year, it was uh, Sean Farrell, and he was doing great. Uh, He's just so much fun to watch. Again, a really tenacious player. He's so hardworking. Uh, like... Like Rafael Javier now could be very proud of uh, Sean Farrell's work ethic. And yeah, he has the playmaking, he has the shooting. I see a future second line winger with him. He's great.
3: Okay, I'm actually going to interject in. Well, first of all, I'm very sorry to do this to you, uh, Sebastian, because I know you're an okay. expert. Uh, I'm going to correct you on something. If you go throughout the history of the the USHL, he is actually the 23rd player in his history. Oh, my sur- God. To, in history, what? to have scored over a hundred points or more. Whoa!
1: Whoa! Now, where did I, where now did I get that. The, oh, second player in the last like twenty years, though. Yeah. Right? Okay. Like, exactly. Yeah. Okay. We're talking about okay. this
3: generation, though. The last one uh, before Sean Farrell was actually 2011? was actually Kevin Roy in 2011 yeah. 12 when he had one hundred and four yeah. points. Now, the record, okay. the all time record, is in eighty five eighty six, with Tim Ferguson scoring a whopping one hundred and thirty five points. That's fifty-six okay. goals and seven nine assists.
1: Now, where I, am I? I misspoke though, but in terms of recent,
2: <laughs> don't, okay, last twenty don't, years,
3: yeah. don't worry about it. My now, lifetime. Okay, so you know what? I'm presenting this stat to you, okay? And um, I was actually pretty wildly, wildly, you know, impressed when I saw uh, that column. As a matter of fact, and saying, "Wow, okay, that's
2: it, it, it's it's impressive,
3: but at the same time, it's not that many." If you look at this list, okay, yeah, you know, the bulk of it was in the 80s, you know, where goaltending didn't exist back then and, and whatnot. Aside, there's Jason Blake at 22, who had 100 points in 93-94. Aside from Jason Blake, there's not really any, any channel around this list. You know, Mike Raz, Mike Carlson, Steve McSwain, Scott Shoffstall, Scott Perper. I mean, unless, you know, my, my history is, is, is a little hazy. I mean, there's no one really of impact um, in this list that has actually crafted them, crafted a legitimate NHL, NHL career, aside again from Jason Blake. So, Sebastian, my question to you now is, I understand how, you know, looking at Sean Farrell, there's the work ethic, there's the skills, and like any uh, good prospect, you know, their stats just keep you know getting better, which is absolutely understandable. However, here's the big question: is this a fluke? Or is this guy for real?
1: Well, for, firstly, if you look at the list, I think one of the big reasons that you don't see many NHLers there is that the USHL was a very weak league for a very long time. It's it's now becoming kind of a CHL counterpart in the US. So it's producing a load of NHL prospects. If you look at even, like, like in this past draft, USHL players, it's, like, the first round is littered with them. Like, Owen Power, NCAA player, he was in Chicago the year before. So, USHL, like, like uh, graduate, basically. Uh, Tyler Boucher, USHL. He should not have gone in the first round, but he did. So, therefore, top 10 talent, technically, even though he should not have gone there. Uh, but <laughs> you, you see you see a bunch of, of these players getting drafted really high now because, the development curve, like, like, like the, it's becoming a very strong development league, and you can't look at like all these stats from like the '80s and see, oh, these are all great tallies, and these players aren't in the NHL, never played in the NHL, and therefore Sean Farrell is not going to play in the NHL because he put up high numbers and whatever, right? Like, it, you can't compare. It's 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 a completely different stratosphere now. Um, and to answer your question, yeah, I, I do think he's for real. Like, like you, you can never really say that any prospect is, like, a guarantee unless it's, like, a, an elite prospect. You always have, like, top 15 picks that – don't make the NHL. Tyler Boucher might be one of them. Ottawa Senators fans, I'm sorry. Oh, um, lay off
3: the Pierre Maguire pick already.
1: You uh, know you love it, Pierre. <laughs> uh, I mean, I liked Tyler Boucher. He just should not have gone that in the first round. But um, yeah, like I, I do think he's for real as a prospect. Is he a guarantee? No, but no one is. He again, he has the foundation. He, he, like he has a he has standout abilities. He has work rate. <laughs> He has everything you really want from a player except for size, which is the reason that he fell because he, he was in his draft year, undersized, and not the best skater. Therefore, he <laughs> should not go in the top three rounds, according to NHL uh, scouting departments and GMs. But he is, again, like if, if you I'm, – I'm still looking forward to watching him play in the NCAA because I want to see how he does against older competition because this year in the USHL – He's one of the oldest players. I mean, he was old for his draft year, right? Like he's he's born in like October or November. Um, So he was a really uh, like old player uh, for his draft year. So he he should not be playing the USHL this year because he was meant to beat Harvard, but things, COVID, right? So (laughs) weird things happen because of COVID, but he's, he's really good. And especially going to Harvard with not only a great teammate, but a friend in Matthew Coronado, it's going to be fun because both of them now have great pedigree and they're likely going to go into Harvard's top six from the get-go, if not the top line, because they have the chemistry and they are like electrifying offensive players. Sean Farrell might not be the most advanced player defensively, but if you have his playmaking ability, his one-timer, his tenacity, you don't have to be dominant defensively, right? Like, like he he tries defensively, and that's going to help him unlock defensive abilities. And the NCAA is a great area to improve that. So I think he is for real.
3: Just for the final sixty seconds of this uh, segment, Sebastian, um, a name that keeps come, popping back up. And you know what? We need to talk about him next week, Matthew Coronado. That's another that's another guy, and, and Scott is also really really high on him scott well. loves him scott loves uh, coronado and also i think at some point we should definitely start discussing maybe the art that is scouting because you know according to scouts Cole Caulfield is not a top 10 uh, draft pick either so
1: so <laughs> big difference there is public scouting versus nhl scouts exactly <laughs> Two very different
3: things exactly you know what to be continued my good friend thanks a lot sebastian no problem
2: you're listening to Puck and Roll.
3: And now for the final segment of the night, we're going to be joined once again by Joshua Rosa and, of course, Sebastian Hi, Josh has a very, very interesting find. I mean, this guy went digging on the internet for absolutely no reason at all because I'm guessing it's August and it's he he was probably bored in the middle of a heat wave or something. And I'm seeing him smile and nod. I'm guessing I'm half right about that. However, you know what? He... he when you start digging a little bit around, you could find some pretty solid gems. In this case, Josh is going to present um, something to us in regards to the bottom six of the Montreal Canadiens. Now I know we've covered this in episode two, where we were talking about the depth behind the bottom six roles with the likes of Matthew Perrault, Cédric Paquette, Artur Lekanen, et cetera, Jake Evans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, a wonderful statistic was brought up. Josh, um, once uh, I, I pass the puck directly to you, like, just tell us where you got this source and what are we doing with this information. The Montreal Canadians are committing, on average, $17.4 million in salary for their bottom six forwards. Now, we're looking at Mike Hoffman, Jake Evans, Josh Anderson – Lekanen, pocket and Armia. Now, these are obviously interchangeable because Hoffman can become Dwayne, Anderson can become Gallagher, uh, Jake Evans can become Perrault, Cedric Pocket can become Paul Byron when he comes back uh, from injury. So that 17.4 can easily go up to almost $20 million in salary cap for the bottom six forwards. So Josh, first of all, where did you get this information? Because this is absolutely incredible. And what are we to do with this? I mean... Is this cause for concern or does this just mean that, you know what, maybe this is just a new way of managing a hockey team and you just need to spread it evenly amongst four lines?
2: Yeah. So the idea came during episode two, when you Patrick were saying that someone on the fourth line is going to be paid on the third line is going to be paid over $5 million per year. Right. So I thought that sounded a bit, uh, odd for the NHL, I thought. How much, how many other teams are like that? What does our f- bottom six stack up to others? So I went to the website Daily Face Off. They seem to have the most accurate, up-to-date rosters and lines. And I didn't change anything. We were all arguing about the what the third and fourth line would look like on episode two and. Just to keep it fair, I don't know how the other teams' rosters are made up. I just took the lines that are on there Mike Hoffman, Jake Evans, Josh Anderson, Lekanen, Paquette, Armia, and found their just one year cap hit on cap friendly. So, not looking at extra, any extra years, any bonuses, anything like that. It's just the cap hit for the one year. And it comes out to 17400 which is the most out of any NHL team. The second most is Calgary, which is $16,603,333. And that's mostly buoyed by that fantastic Milan-Lucic deal that they've got going on down there. The least in the league is, to me, unsurprisingly, Detroit. They've got a young terrible teams so they don't have the players to really give that money to and then second last is our friends in toronto six million nine hundred ninety five thousand dollars just because they have the most expensive top six in the entire league the most expensive four players but the good thing is that we have one of the best bottom sixes in the league, arguably the best. So we're really p- getting what we're paying for with those guys on the roster.
3: Well, you said we're getting what we're paying for, but at the same time, I can't help but notice Tampa Bay is scrolling near the bottom, having spent $9.1 million for the bottom six, and they just won back to back cups. Now, complain all you want you know, about the, uh, you know, the circumstances behind the seasons. But I mean, it's still, it, it, it's still of note that you have to have, you know, your superstars on there and you have to pay them the big money and whatnot. But at the same time, if I'm looking at some of the the teams that, that, that spend the most, um, you know, Montreal being on top, you know, like, okay, Calgary, Philadelphia, you know, Philly might cause a surprise this year, you know, with all the changes and whatnot, same with the Rangers every year. Anaheim has a ton of money for a team that's supposedly rebuilding. The Islanders are there. Pittsburgh at $14 million. I mean, it seems that there's no really cohesive cohesiveness as to figure out, is it a good idea or not to spend this much money um, on the bottom six?
2: Can I just say something quick? For Tampa Bay, that is the money without that dynamite third line that they had of uh... – that triplet line—it's yeah. uh, the third line, third and fourth line that they have now. So that has Ross, Colton, Cirelli, Joseph, Maroon, Belmar, Corey Perry. That's still pretty good bottom six, but not—but
3: not as uh, effective as what we saw this past playoffs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and
1: Cirelli was playing the top six in the playoffs too, so he might—he might be there in reality. But yeah, like you—you—you you, you can't really use the Stanley Cup argument with Tampa Bay's current bottom bottom six because, like, that Goodrow, um, uh, Gord, and Coleman line is completely gone, right? So, but, yeah, again, it's just different ways that different teams are constructed, and Tampa has a lot of superstars up front that we just don't, at least yet, right? Like, like I love Suzuki, I love Coughfield. They're going to be great this season, but they're not going to be Braden Point or uh, Stamkos or Kucherov or whoever, right? So, different teams are constructed differently, and Montreal is built on forward depth and forward depth alone.
3: Yeah, I mean, we we've discussed uh, through and through, you know, whether or not the Canadians were going to make the playoffs or not. I mean, it almost ended up in a in a in a hell in a cell at WrestleMania, for that matter, with Elias. And um, however. There is still that obsession with needing to have two top-heavy lines in the NHL, and I don't know if it's just a way of trying to reinvent the wheel because it's something that we've seen pretty much throughout Mark Bergevin's tenure in uh, tenure in Montreal. For the last ten years, he's always tried to build a team from the from you know the the the, the last guy on the fourth line up until the first, on the first line, we see it all the time at the trade deadline, trying to get that extra depth, that extra grit, those extra useless old players like Steve Hott, for example, but I mean, and Dwight
2: King, King,
3: exactly. But, you know, at least, you know, it shows that, you know, he's always had that philosophy of trying to, you know, get that, those four lines working. Now, um, Josh, I'm going to, I'll send it back to you. I mean, is it just wishful thinking to think that we could win this way because some people can almost take um, the money ball story in major league baseball back when the, the Oakland A's was trying to reinvent the wheel and winning in, in with, you know, analytics and cheaper salaries and whatnot, or, you know, or do we have to just swallow our pride and we'll say, Hey, one day the beliefs might heaven forbid win the Stanley cup with their current type of, Roster where they're spending three hundred and fifty million dollars on three guys.
2: Uh, It's really hard to say because there you can pick contracts out of a hat and be like, "Oh, this guy's making only like only a couple million and he's had a breakout year and scored thirty goals or whatever." Kirill Kaprizov, and then you got guys like, um, oh, what's his name that just got traded from Vancouver. The worst contract in hockey, there. Oh,
1: Louis Erickson. Oh, Louis Erickson. Louis yeah.
2: Erickson, yeah. Like at six, and you can't argue that he's yeah. worth yeah. that money. Uh, so he was the good in Boston question... at least before. Yeah, he, was good, signed, he was good in Boston, and then
1: before he signed the contract, and then he was really bad afterwards, which is not ideal for Vancouver. Oh, no, he sat on his contract, and that was the end of that. Yeah.
2: The question is, when it comes down to it, is the kind of big game-breaking moments say. Okay, like seasons online, games online. Who are you taking that shot? Who's taking that shot? And the people that make the money take the shots. Like, say what you want about Austin Matthews. I want him taking that last shot to win the game because he is the Rock Richard winner. Now, we're starting to develop guys like that with Suzuki and Caulfield, but before that, it was kind of hard. It's like, do you want. Tatar taking that shot. He doesn't have the best shot in the world, but he can beat guys. Is it Brendan Gallagher? Is it? It comes down to that kind of game-breaking ability when you need someone that can blow the game open and do something completely incredible. And a lot of these guys could do that, like Paul Byron's on the fourth line. And he had that incredible shorthanded goal in Game One there. Oh yeah, but yeah, but and that doesn't happen. Every game, like it does with Sidney Crosby, sometimes, and he gets, that's why he gets paid the big bucks. <laughs> no,
3: but at the same time, I mean, you bring up a very, very valid point, Sebastian. If you want to elaborate on that after I'm done, the very um, it's almost a luxury, for that matter, to say, um, you know, you had some long shifts. Um, maybe you know you had a line that struggled a little, a little more, for example, and you got Mike Hoffman on the ice who's done squat all night, but then at At the last second, he scores the game-tying goal, you know? So having someone like him versus Alex Belzil, no disrespect to him, you know, can make a world of a difference. And I think that's what we're trying to do here. And this is something that we've reiterated in the last couple of episodes, that the Canadians are built to work with four lines on any given night. Am I correct?
1: Yeah. And I think think one thing that Montreal is trying to change, even from just the playoffs, is not just having four really strong lines, but having four lines that can take over a game offensively, right? Like, however you're going to split up the four lines this year, you're going to have someone on each line that has game-breaking ability. Like, say what you want, but uh, you will Armia, but, like, he's Connor McDavid, like, once every 10 games, right? Like, he has game-breaking ability. It's just very rare, but it's there, right? It's like, still there, he, yeah. It's still there. It's just, it's not consistent, but it's there. On the third line, you're going to have one of Anderson, Gallagher, Hoffman. And like, like Hoffman's going to be a frustrating player for us Habs fans to watch because he is not good most of the time. But then he scores a lot of power play goals and he's going to be really fun in those moments. And he has that game-breaking ability. He... Is also a really good skater, so he gets a lot of breakaways. He's 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 a good he's really good offensively. He he, he puts the puck in the net and on the second line, whoever you have there, Galley, Toffoli, um, KK, right? Like like we saw that in, in overtime a couple of times with with Kakaniemi. He can have that game breaking ability, and the first line's gonna be stacked with it. Like like. I mean, Dwayne, who knows where he's going to be in the lineup, but he has that ability. It's just, it needs to come out more. And then Suzuki and of like game breaking is their thing. So
3: Absolutely. And Josh, once again, thank you very much for bringing this up to us. I mean, that was actually some some very, very interesting statistics. And I'm very curious to see uh, how that's going to play out uh, throughout the year. And hopefully, hey, you never know. Maybe that is going to be the new way of winning hockey games. You know, you got to roll out the four lines. You know, you are going to do what you got to do. And, well, you know, I know we lost Shea Weber on the back end, but so uh, I'm guessing we won't, we're not going to have a choice but to roll with six defensemen instead of four heavy minutes and whatnot. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that is all the time we have, unfortunately. I know we can go on all night talking about the Montreal Canadiens, but that's his life. We've got to stop at some point, but uh, thank you very much, Josh and Sebastian for being a part of this panel. You guys were absolutely incredible and generous as per usual. Big thank you again to Elias Lerati and Scott Calvin, you know, for their, se- for their segments again, big shout out to um, Shane Ivers over at SilvermanSound.com for providing all the music for us. So you're going to tune in next week where we're going to be talking more about some uh, of the Canadians. We're going to be covering a lot, a little more about the Trois-Rivières-Lyon The Lions are starting their season very soon and the rosters are in to shape up. So we're going to see what's happening with them. And of course, a lot more here on Pock and Roll. Have a good week, everyone.